Hello, and welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Vinny, I'm the lead pastor at Asbury. Thank you for joining us. We hope this episode will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, maybe even entertain you a little bit as we go. This is going to be a shortish episode out of necessity because you may not be able to tell, but my voice is kind of given out on me. I've had some kind of a head cold, and it's causing me to cough a lot, and I need to uh, preserve my voice for Sunday. <coughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna run through just real briefly one of the books in the Bible you're reading right now, and one particular passage of it that I think tends to raise a lot of questions. Um, and once I've done that, we'll kind of close out. I have a couple of things I want to remind you of, um, and then we'll be done. So, uh, you are reading, let me move this microphone a little closer here. You are reading, uh, 1 Thessalonians, and you're about to start 2 Thessalonians. Great books. I like them a lot. Um, I won't give you too much background except to let you know that, you know, Thessalonians are people of the city of Thessalonica. Um, which is on the eastern coast of Greece. So these are Greek people, and and Paul would have stopped there. If you can kind of picture Greece in your mind and, and that whole kind of section of the Mediterranean, that eastern part, Paul's missionary journey, he kind of goes north from uh, Judea, Syria, Damascus, that region, He travels north through Turkey into Macedonia, where Philippi is, the Philippines. Philippi is uh, the first church in Europe. That's the first church on the European continent that Paul plants. Um, And then from there, he kind of travels along that coastline south into uh, Athens and that part of Greece. So Thessalonica was one of the stops he made along the way as he was traveling south. Um, as far as I know, this would have been like the second place he stopped on that trip, but I can't remember off the top of my head if he like planted this church immediately after Philippi or if it came a bit later. Um, I would have to go look that up, but but not important for what I'm talking about right now, which is the famous passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, which many people... Uh, like to use as a proof text for the idea of the rapture, this idea that when Jesus comes back, um, all the the faithful people, the faithful Christians will get uh, taken away before the earth enters into its tribulation. Now, I'll state right off the bat, that whole idea is nonsense. There's no support for it in the Bible. It is based on a lot of... uh, severe misreadings of scripture, particularly the book of Revelation, which most people just flat out do not understand. Uh, And I will be doing some teaching on Revelation later this year when you're reading it, because it's a great book, fantastic book, absolutely beautiful, with a lot of wonderful things to teach us. I love Revelation. It's hugely important, but most people uh, have been subjected to woefully bad interpretations of it, Um, starting in the 19th century and then moving on. And so people struggle with it a lot, but it's there's <coughs> there's a lot going on in Revelation uh, that, that people don't get, and um, that's for later. But th- this text in 1 Thessalonians 4 is often used as like one of the proof texts of the rapture. But yeah, see, it says 
We're all going to get caught up in the air with Jesus when he comes back. But they misread what's happening. So let's read this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in uh, verse 13. And I am reading out of uh, the the New American Standard Bible, which is not the same translation you're using in your one-year Bibles. So it might sound a bit different. Um, So verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as indeed the rest of mankind do who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So, a couple of things going on there. First, he's, he's comforting them because there is, there is this really widespread expectation in the early church um, that like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Um, it's a nearly universal expectation, in, in fact, that, that he's coming back tomorrow. So they start to worry about the people who have died before Jesus comes back. Because what does that mean? Um, um, so one thing Paul is trying to do is say, well, look, it, it doesn't actually matter. Um, he doesn't come out right, and he doesn't come out and say just outright in this passage that like it doesn't matter if you know if Jesus comes back now or if he comes back in three thousand years. We don't know. Um, although I suspect Paul probably had an, an an understanding that Jesus might not come back for a long, long time, even if he kept urging people to live as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, which is how we should all live. Um, his point in doing that was not to literally anticipate that Jesus is coming tomorrow, but rather to act as if, because you never know. Uh, Jesus makes it clear in the Gospels that no one knows when he's going to return, and any attempt to predict his return is 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 utterly futile. No one will ever guess it. Um, so Paul is just saying, you know, he might come back tomorrow. He might not, but he might. And so you it would do well to be always living in a state of faithfulness and righteousness. Um, but so you have you have this issue where people are worried about their friends, their family members who have died. Jesus hasn't come back. Those people are dead. What happens? And Paul says, well, look, you don't have to worry about it because he's going to raise the dead. Uh, the, the dead will be raised. This is this is the core of Christian hope. Remember, the, the, the core of our hope is not that we get, uh, that our, our disembodied souls will dwell in heaven forever, but that uh, we will, we will rise from the dead for a, a an eternal bodily existence with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, which is, by the way, what the end of Revelation is about. Um, and, and that's the core of our hope. So actually, we don't have to worry if, if people have died before Jesus comes back, because he's already demonstrated that death is not forever, that he has conquered death. He rose from the dead, and he will raise us from the dead. Um, so there's a bit of comforting going on there, but there's there's this passage here 
And it starts in verse 16, which is the, the part that people have used as like the, the proof text for some kind of rapture, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Now the first problem with using this as a proof text for this idea of the rapture is that it doesn't say anything about what happens after we meet the Lord in the air. So there's no reason to extrapolate that from this. We go back with him to heaven and never come back on earth, and we watch as the earth descends into chaos and suffering. Um, which, by the way, is just absolutely not part of anything in the Bible. The whole idea of that tribulation comes from a few different passages, but all the passages in Revelation that talk about that are talking about things that uh, either have already happened or are currently happening. And we'll get to that later in the year when we talk in Revelation. But that's just a little preview for you, that whole idea of the, the tribulation, that, that um, you're dealing with highly, highly metaphorical language uh, in Revelation. And so we'll have to unpack that a bit. But for this particular passage, I'm going to break down for you a little bit what's happening. And you have to understand, to understand what's going on here, um, the way that a, a king or an emperor would be welcomed into his uh, into into a city sort of like on his return from a war or partic- or like any kind of visit right it, it, any time the Roman emperor returns to Rome uh, there is a there's a particular thing that, that that is done to welcome them and that's that um, there's a you know a loud trumpet that sounded a great shout from the people and more importantly, uh, as he is on the road coming in to the city, particularly after he's returning from a victorious battle, uh, the people in the city who are, um, how do I say this, like the most important people, right? The, the, the political and religious leaders of the city, the military leaders, the ones who uh, support him most in his rule, right? The The sort of the inner circle. In in the case of the Roman Emperor, it would be like the Senate, the military leaders, the magistrates. They go out of the city on the road to meet the Emperor before he's come back in, and they escort him into the city. And so the imagery that Paul is using here is royal imagery. He is describing a victorious king returning to his kingdom. The, the trumpet sounds, there's a loud shout, and, and then the, the faithful people, the Christians, the, 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 the people who support the rule and reign of Jesus and have been watching over his kingdom while he's been gone, come out to meet him and escort him into his kingdom. That's the imagery Paul is drawing on. People who would have read this in the first century when he wrote it would have picked up on that right away, that he's, he's describing a royal return after a victory, uh, not a you know, snatching away of the believers and then leaving forever, but a return of the king after a victory. That's what's going on. So um, he's very much drawn on, on the imagery of all the, the leaders and, and uh, ruling class of a city 
going to meet the emperor as he's returning victorious from battle and escorting him home. This is what the Christians will do with Jesus when he returns, right? That, that's the imagery he's drawing on. And it's imagery. I mean, he's, you know, who knows if that's exactly what will happen when Jesus comes back. But he's, he's not necessarily trying to say this is literally what will happen. He's trying to say it's going to be like a victorious king returning home uh, to his kingdom. So that's what's going on in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's not about the rapture. It is about the return of the king of creation to his kingdom, where his rule will be established forever. Very joyful, very hopeful. I cannot wait until Jesus is Lord of all creation and, and everyone is subject to his rule. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of tired of the current rulers we have. Not just in this country, but all over. They're not that great. Uh, I, would, I look forward to the rule of Jesus. Um, and this, by the way, is why it's so important for us to keep hold of that idea of Jesus as king and Jesus as Lord. We're really good. We are really good at maintaining the idea of Jesus as our savior and as our friend, uh, which are both true things about Jesus. But when we, when we forget the idea of Jesus as king and as our Lord, as 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 our king specifically, we, we are going to struggle then to interpret some parts of the New Testament because there are a lot of things in the New Testament that really rely on, that, on, on the reader having that notion in their mind of Jesus the king. And, and that's important. It's important. It'll help you interpret the New Testament better. Um, but it also helps you order your life better. Right? Jesus is not just the person who forgave your sins and paid the price. He's not just your friend to whom you can uh, unburden yourself in your prayers. Jesus is your king. He has authority. Uh, and to be a Christian means to submit yourself to the authority of King Jesus. This is a huge and crucial piece of Christian belief and Christian life. And it's one that modern Christians in general tend to struggle to do, but especially here in the U.S. where we don't like kings, uh, we, we, we wrestle with that a bit more. But Jesus is our king. So that is First Thessalonians 4. I, I kind of just imagined that would be one that people would have questions about. And, and maybe if you didn't have questions about it yet, you probably would at some point. Um, so I wanted to address that. Now, before I, I end this podcast, which as I told you is kind of short, um, I want to remind you of a couple of things. First off, don't forget that we are doing Thanksgiving for a 1,000. We're actually trying to feed 2,000 families this year, so the name is a bit misleading. We, we, we're working really hard to feed as many people as possible. This is like my favorite thing, by the way, that our church does. It's such a beautiful, wonderful outreach, and I love it because I am not involved with it at all. I don't do any of it. I don't plan it. I don't organize it. I buy a couple bags because I like to support the ministry. I, I contribute to it, but I, I don't run it. I have no role in planning it, nothing. Uh, I love that this is volunteer-led. I love that uh, John Gain in our church is the one who really came up with the idea and has run with it, and, and that's just a beautiful, wonderful thing to see uh, someone who who has taken so seriously the command of God to to feed the hungry and to love your neighbor and to really live that out. I love it. 
It is such a wonderful expression of the faithfulness of John and of this church. Uh, so I want to remind you to do it. Uh, we've got flyers here at the church that list all the things you need to buy for one badge. You can find that list on the church website as well. I believe it also goes out in the newsletter. So buy a bag or two. Uh, tell your friends. Let's support this as much as we can. The donations are due by November the 4th. Uh, so we've got a couple weeks left to keep donating to that. But please, please, please support that ministry. It means so much to me. It means so much to the people we're blessing through it. I, I, I just can't say enough good things about it. Um, I also want to remind you, uh, I've, I've created these prayer guides for our church to use for the next six months in this discernment process as we go forward. Uh, if you didn't grab one on Sunday, please grab one. Uh, I really, really want our church to be praying regularly for the same things. Um, there is something about collective prayer, collective unified prayer that is more effective than individual prayers. Now, don't ask me why that is. I, I don't have I don't have like a really good fancy theological reason why that's the case. This is purely based on my observation as well as the observation of many people who I know and love and respect. There is something that happens when the people of God collectively pray together consistently for the same thing over a long period of time. It makes a bigger difference. I don't know why, but it does. So I'm convinced that if we as a church are collectively praying together for six months for God to guide us, we can't go wrong. We will be, I'm convinced that if we do that, we will be unified. We will be following God's will. Uh, things will go better for us. So grab one of those prayer guides. And I recommended two books in that prayer guide. Read them both. Read books. I will tell you, you cannot, cannot be well informed about any subject unless you are reading books about it. Period. Bar none. I don't care what the subject is, whether it's whether it's a political subject, a, a, a theological subject, anything. If you are not reading books about it, you are not well informed. Can't it's it's just not possible. The articles you read on the internet are not going to go in depth as much as a book will. And let's face it, most of you don't read the articles on, on the internet. You click on the headline, read like the summary, and then you don't read the whole article. I don't. I, I love you all, but you do it because um, we all do it. I do it too. You have to read books to be well informed on anything. Absolutely. There's no question about it. It is objectively true whether you like it or not. You have to read books to be well informed on any subject. Now this month, the books I've recommended are fairly light reading. One is uh, by Francis Chan. It is about church unity and what church unity really looks like and how to achieve it, which seemed like a good thing for us to, to start out with. The other book is called How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People by Pete Gregg, who is one of my favorite speakers and authors. Probably one of the world's, if you can call someone an, an expert on prayer, he's probably one of the best people to learn about prayer from. You'll pick that up when you read the book. That book is an especially easy read. Uh, it's, it's really quick. They're both short books, by the way. They're not hard to read, but read them both. Read them both. And I'm going to recommend more books next month. Read them both. I, I'm going to make an effort, by the way, 
every time I recommend a book, I'm going to try and keep them as, as short as possible, and I'm going to try and make them light reading every time. So I, I, I know I'm making a big demand of you by asking you all to read for this, but it is so, so, so important to read. Uh, it, if we're going to be people who are well-informed in six months' time when we vote, we have to be people who are reading books. So, get the books I recommend and read them. Uh, you will notice, by the way, not so much this month, but starting next month, the resources that I'm going to be recommending and the resources up on our church website will lean heavily toward the sort of pro-disaffiliation, pro-global Methodist church side of the argument. Now, the reason for that is between... Uh, the conference website, the Rio Texas conference website, between the meetings we've had down here with the bishop and with people from the conference office, and between the meetings we are going to have with our district superintendent, um, they're all giving you a whole lot of information and resources and arguments from the pro-UMC side, the, the side of the argument that's trying to convince you not to leave. Uh, now, I'm committed to giving you balanced information from both sides, and to and right now it seems to me that the way I, I have to balance the information you're getting, excuse me, starting to cough a little bit, uh, but to balance the information you're getting, I have to kind of provide it from the side that is pro-disaffiliation and pro-GMC, because you're, you're already going to be receiving all of the information from the other side of that argument from uh, sources in our conference office and in our district office as they come and talk to you. Uh, so so t I have to balance that out a little bit. Um, but pick up those prayer guides. Pray every day, please, and read the books. I'll see you on Sunday.